the thought that five people sitting there can have any influence at all on a very large company is for the birds. You know, it's just ridiculous. And you shouldn't even try and go there. Maybe you should work in, with education. Maybe you should work with business schools. Maybe you should try and pick the SMEs that you think are going to be the future multinationals and try and work with them. Uh, but don't try and work with very large companies. Hi, I'm Belden Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Charles Wookie, CEO of Blueprint for Better Business, an independent charity whose purpose is to create a better society through better business. Charles describes how, as a startup, they use the leverage of challenging widely accepted ideas to successfully go after their hardest targets. He discusses how they create the opportunity for collaborative change and how they use silence and simple questions to reveal the underlying constraints that keep an organization from realizing its full potential. Despite Blueprint being a charity, there are lessons here for any leader who needs to create big change. Charles, thank you for uh, for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about Blueprint for Better Business. Sure. Well, Bolden, thank you so much for inviting me to have this conversation with you. So uh, I, I've got a slightly unusual background. Uh, after university, I became an accountant with what was then Pete Marwick, now KPMG in London, and qualified as an accountant, but decided I didn't really want to pursue that. I then became a clerk at the House of Commons for a few years, where I was clerk to the Trade and Industry Select Committee. And after that, I went to the Institute for Fiscal Studies and learned some economics. I had not studied economics at university, but they wanted somebody with an accounting background to help finish a project. I had a great opportunity of being able to learn some economics from super smart economists, able to ask idiot boy questions because I wasn't expected to be an expert myself. It's a wonderful position to be in. And then I, I kind of found myself increasingly drawn to the charity sector and the faith sector. And I ended up with a kind of complete career change, ending up working for a Catholic cardinal for a while. A guy called Basil Hube, who was then the Catholic Archbishop of Westminster, as his public affairs assistant. And I did that for some time because he was the most wonderful guy. And because I'd studied philosophy and theology at university, that was also relevant. But he was interested in having the assistance of somebody who'd got a bit of a political background as well. So uh, I then carried on working in the kind of faith sector after he died. And then that led to what I'm doing now because I did some fundraising and met a whole bunch of high net worth people in the city who wanted to support faith-led initiatives. And through that, increasingly became aware in the run-up to the financial crisis of the sort of dis-ease of a lot of people in business about the direction of travel. And after the financial crisis, we then ended up organizing with others some seminars at Schroeder's Bank, really on the kind of ethical basis of what had gone wrong with the financial crisis. That, in turn, is what led to Blueprint. And I found myself, after kind of 27 years, going back into the business world, but running a charity, which was helping to promote purpose-led business, as we now think about that. And I started doing that in 2012 and have been running it full-time from 2017, helping businesses that really want to change the way they show up in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and how big is Blueprint right now? Oh, it's tiny. It's tiny. We're five people. We're a registered charity. And when we set ourselves up, we deliberately wanted to be completely independent of business, including financially. So we didn't want to be 
a consulting practice that was selling services. So we funded it directly from charitable foundations and high net worth individuals. But we've now also do take corporate donations, uh, provided they're literally donations and not a disguised payment for anything else. We're very ambitious about what we want to help achieve and the scale of the impact that we want to have through the collaborative work we do with others and the sizes of the businesses that we work with. Mm -hmm. What would you say your purpose is and what was the process of sort of crystallizing that purpose? So uh, the presenting problem was a breakdown of trust between business and society. In 2012, a bunch of people got together. We had people from economics. We had people from philosophy, from theology, from business. Uh, We had a journalist. We had a former permanent secretary of customs and excise. We had a whole cross-section of society in a way you could say all of whom were really interested in business and passionate about the need for change. Our work in that first year was really trying to understand at a deep level, at a system level, a societal level, what had gone wrong and what could be done about it. And the essence of our thought was the market never exists in a pure state. It's always socially and culturally conditioned. And there are always at any point in time and space dominant ideas that shape the way businesses think and act. And often these are reflexes and they're not reflected on. And we felt that there were two ideas in this category which have been super powerful. One was Milton Friedman's, the idea that the purpose of business is to maximize shareholder value or that construction of it um, within the law and ethical custom, importantly, as he added. And the second was the thought that people are fundamentally self-interested and motivated by money, status and power. And that if you align incentives, you know, people are appealing to no more than people's self-interest. They'll behave in a way that enables a company to maximize its profits. So kind of economics 101. And, and when we looked at this, we thought, well, there's a double disconnect that this creates. So there's the disconnect between business and society when it allows you to externalize a bunch of things. And there's more profoundly a disconnect in the human heart if people feel miserable at work because they don't feel inspired by the purpose and they don't feel valued as people and they don't feel the organization values people. So our thought was, well, Really, there are alternatives, available alternatives within the law, within regulation to rethink these ideas. You know, you can have an idea which says the purpose of business is to benefit society. And you can have an idea, which is indeed a more realistic idea of people as being meaning seeking, naturally relational and desirous not just of money, status and power, but also of autonomy, of mastery, of development of growth in life through work. Our feeling was that with these two ideas taken together, a richer idea around purpose and a a more realistic idea of how people are, how human beings are, would create the potential of better businesses that are better for society and better for people. So that was our kind of core thinking. So the thought of the charity then, the purpose of the charity really, but it did take us a while to get to this articulation of it, is to help create a better society through better business. So that's why we are around as a charity. And interestingly, to qualify as a charity in English law, we had to fill one of the criteria of charitable status. And they're very strictly circumscribed. And the one we fitted under just was the idea about citizenship. So active citizenship is a charitable purpose. So the Charity Commission said, OK, so what you're doing is you're enable people to be fully citizens in their engagement with their workplaces and in whatever capacity they do relate to their workplace or to business. And because you're doing that, you are charitable in our view. So that's quite interesting as well. So their emphasis was on active engagement of people in the process of trying to change business to be a force for good. Mm. Shouldn't there be like another bullet point in that list that, that more directly hits at organizations that are trying to help businesses be better, if I could put it that way? Yeah, well, uh, well interestingly, I think the answer to that is yes. The fact that Blueprint exists as a charity working with business 
we have somebody who's just now finishing a PhD on Blueprint because in the, from the point of view of social sciences, we are apparently a kind of new field. We're a new species of social organization. Some academics who think about how organizations are structured are quite excited by this because we're a kind of crossover because people tend to think of business doing commercial stuff and charities doing non-commercial stuff. And here we are as a non-commercial entity working with commercial entities. So how does that work? And why are you a charity and how does that work itself out? So yes, you're right. I think we've been able to use the existing rules, but it was a bit of a squeeze. Interesting. You, you also talked about sort of society better, better for people. It does feel to me like there's a debate, and I've heard sort of both sides of it, that this also makes the business itself a better business. Just curious if you've got any points of view on that. Well, I do believe that. I believe that actually to be the key that unlocks real sustained business engagement with this agenda. Because I think up until now, what we've had is a series of initiatives where businesses have recognized they've got a problem, a reputational problem, and they've tried to mitigate the risk of that problem in a number of different ways, which are ancillary to the core business. And the growth of corporate social responsibility is a classic illustration of that. So we do all our business things over here, but if you worry about our reputation, well, let me show you this lovely school we just built in Tanzania. And these two things are kind of apart. And that's a problem because what that does essentially is to institutionalize a kind of divided thinking. And our analysis right at the get-go was to say, actually, that's the problem, that what we need to do is to get businesses to think about why is the world a better place as a result of you being successful? Forget CSR, forget philanthropy. Just think about your products and services. You know, I mean, there's a lovely phrase which we've got in our framework about a business producing goods that are truly good and services that truly serve. So are your goods truly good? Are your services truly serving? Are your customers in this society a better place as a result of you being successful? And our thought was, well, that's the core question, really. And what we then need to do is to try and find ways of encouraging, helping and being very curious and understanding what needs to happen in order for businesses to be profitable in pursuing purposes that benefit society. So it's a non-trivial question, this, because if you're moving from a mentality that says we're here to maximize profit and do a bunch of good things on the side to we're here to benefit society through our core business, it may well be that there are some things you need to stop doing that are profitable but aren't socially useful. You sort of threw the word externalities or, or externalizing in there, which I think is an important element of this. One point of view, which some people might think of as extreme, could argue that businesses, even where those externalities aren't priced, should try and figure out what the prices should be and should therefore sort of try and govern their own economics around that. But, but then others would say, yes, but that'll mean we'll be competed out. Is that an issue? And if so, how should people address that? Yeah, of course, it's an issue. It's a huge issue, really. So let's look at an issue like equality, diversity and inclusion. So we work with a bunch of business, large companies. And one of the things we do is we bring CEOs together in a kind of privileged space, really, where they share and reflect on their own experience and what they're finding. We had some fascinating conversations after the Black Lives Matter stuff and the George Floyd murder. And my learnings was once you understand as a business leader that you are in some sense complicit as a social organization in injustices which are not your fault but they're there and you become really aware that they're there 
and they may be injustice about access to jobs or about gender parity pay or about black lives or whatever. Once you become aware that you are in a society which has these endemic injustices, you then have a choice. And your choice is then a conscious choice about whether you say it's not my problem, so you're going to consciously ignore it, or you say, actually, we're a social organization. We our, our long-term prosperity as a business depends on a stable society and a more equal society. It's in our business interest in the long term to play an active citizenship role here, as well as having a reputational benefit from doing so. So we're going to be a bit proactive. We're not going to become a political organization, but we're not going to ignore this. And we're going to maybe set some targets around diversity and inclusion and think about what we can be and do in society. Now, there's a balance there, clearly. But I think I've been very struck by the thought process that's led people to say, I want to run a successful business that um, people are proud to work in, where they feel that we are not just here to make money, but we're here to help build a better society through profitable activities. And that as a social organization, we have a broader responsibility as well to help build a decent society for everybody within the limits of what we can do as a business. Another way of describing that is internalizing a whole bunch of social externalities because you decide it is my problem and I'm going to help within the limits of my business to do something about that, even though it doesn't just depend on us, even though it's not a business only problem, even though with all those other caveats that one can add. I mean, and I think one can replicate that thought process for one or two other things as well. On the environmental side, one of the things I think the journey of businesses go on when they become purpose-led, if they're serious about it, is a kind of mindset maturity. You know, there's a sort of journey one sees between, OK, you know, if you start by saying, well, I'm here purely to make money within the law, you know, you're not going to be exposed to litigation, but you're not going to do any more than you absolutely have to. Right. That's going to because it's going to cost you money. Or, and then you, step two is to go beyond that and say, well, actually, we're going to innovate into green products. We don't have to do that. Our existing products are pretty good, but we anticipate the change. And we also want to serve customers who really want to do this. And we can. So we're going to. So we're a bank. So we're going to do green mortgages. Or we're Unilever, so we're going to start investing quite heavily in recyclable plastic ahead of the market requiring us to do that because we want to try and help be part of the change we want to create. Now, then the third step, and I think this in the environmental area is where it's so important, is that there are a whole bunch of externalities that no one business can deal with by itself. And then the question is, do you go into collective action or not? How do you figure out what your strategy is in the middle of that? What What is your strategy? Well, the thought that five people sitting there can have any influence at all on a very large company is for the birds. You know, it's just ridiculous. And you shouldn't even try and go there. Maybe you should work in, with education. Maybe you should work with business schools. Maybe you should try and pick the SMEs that you think are going to be the future multinationals and try and work with them. Uh, but don't try and work with very large companies. And we had a debate about what we were trying to achieve and the best way of, of doing that. The result of that was a consensus that we actually should aim at the hardest target, kind of quixotic project. And the hardest target in the UK context was excos and boards of large listed businesses. And the reason we did that was because we felt that their scale and reach, if we could engage with maybe one business in each sector over a period of years that liked our thinking, that used it, that in a sense, we did experiments with them that tested the hypothesis that Blueprint's approach to purpose, to people, could actually create a better business that was better society and better for people. So we'd just try and demonstrate this empirically in different settings. And then by using different settings in different sectors, apply the learning, learn with, with the companies as they were doing this, and then try and amplify and accelerate that learning 
through having a coaches and consultants network that we would create as well and then eventually put online everything we've learned because as a charity we could make it completely freely available subject only to the willingness of the companies and in that way try and amplify and accelerate this system shift so work with companies work with those who most influence those people so investors headhunters the, the the coaches and consultants that ceos listen to and find good ways of working with them and then try and amplify the learning of that process thereafter that basically has been the strategy but it's evolved in a couple of quite important ways one is that when we started we had this i think rather grand idea that we would create a movement it would be the blueprint movement and then we realized now that's a silly idea because there are loads and loads of different organizations doing similar things to us there is a movement and we should just see ourselves as part of this movement not not to corral people around blueprint for better business as a name or a badge or a flag um so we became more modest around that but the the idea of a movement is still very important i think and then the second thing we did how best to engage with these companies because um we were very fortunate in having direct access to ceos we had that because we had Vittorio Colau, who was then running Vodafone. We had Paul Polman, who was then running Unilever, who were really strong personal advocates for this. And so they would bring their friends to dinner. So I'd be able to pitch at a dinner to eight or 10 FTSE 100 CEOs directly, which is kind of helpful if you want to get going. You know, you start at the top. So we started there. And there were a few, not many, who thought, yeah, this is interesting. Come and see me. We'll have a chat. We'll see where we can go. Um, but we were learning, and this is 2015, 2016, 2017, we were really learning ourselves then about, well, how do you actually, we, have, we were really clear about the thinking, we were really clear it could be helpful. What we didn't have at that point were the practical tools to work with to help companies actually put this into practice. But we were also very wary of, of the tools-based approach, which simply said, and forgive me, I'm putting it this way, Belden, given your own background, but I don't believe there's a 600-page McKinsey manual that takes you from where you are now to being purpose-led, that there's a whole kind of process that if only you discover the process, it all works brilliantly, and you don't have to think about personal challenge and mindset change. So we were very clear that that wasn't the solution, but equally, we at that early stage, we didn't really have a clear as idea as we do now about what you actually do. So that was our problem. Mm-hmm. As you're describing it, that journey of having an intent and sort of a picture of the way things could be, but having to learn sort of what actually engages and works with the people you're trying to serve and shape sounds very much like a startup. Yeah, I think it is. I think that's right. I think we did. I mean, we we are a startup. And I think we learned as we went, you know, and, uh, you know, there's certain scar tissue when you kind of try things and you... You get some short-term benefits of things, and then you realize, oh, okay, but that didn't really stick. You know, we worked something in that area of the business, but then something else happened or somebody left. So your whole relationship was too dependent on one key person. So the the key breakthrough, actually, for us was a colleague of mine uh, who was with us for about a year and a half, Vicky Grinnell-Wright, who was our head of corporate engagement. And now my colleague, Dee Corrigan, has succeeded Vicky. It was Vicky's insight prompted a bit by a very good exchange I had with one of our advisory council, Margaret Heffernan, because I asked Margaret, I said, how do we fail? Uh, which is always a great question, actually. Uh, and she said, Charles, you fail by delivering phony catharsis. So they all feel better, but then they all go back to work and they don't do anything with the thinking. Uh, so you have lovely conversations, but nothing changes. So that's how you fail. So we thought, OK, so how do you de-risk that? 
And the answer that Vicky came up with was to create what we call social contracts. And a social contract is social in the sense of no money, no legals. But it's a two-year engagement with a CEO and a team. And essentially what we say to them is, look, we will accompany you as a team over the next two years to stimulate a different way of thinking using Blueprint's approach, to support and challenge you and to stimulate action. And we'll do that by bringing together running sessions for your exco and for your board around Blueprint's thinking as a provocation. We will bring the CEOs together in breakfast forums three times a year we do that. I see the CEOs one-to-one every 10 weeks or so, which is a form of soft accountability to the commitment they've made, essentially. So we're coming back to the same agenda and hearing where they are, what's changed, what's a challenge, what's working, what's not working. And in a way, it enables them to know that this is not just something that they did once and then they're going to go away from. Similarly, the sessions with heads of sustainability, sometimes heads of strategy, sometimes HRDs, and we've also convened some chairs sometimes as well. So we have forums that we bring people in the same role in different businesses together. And this two-year engagement, it's been a breakthrough, complete breakthrough for us, because what that does is enable these experiments to actually happen. And with Dee in particular, what we've done, and she's really led this, is to develop some really good workshops um, which enable people to explore together in a safe environment, but quite powerfully, the underlying thinking and assumptions that shaping the way in which they're leading their business. Um, and they're quite fundamental questions, really, like what for you is the relationship between purpose and profit? Like, what do you really want your legacy to be when you go? Like, what assumptions do you really honestly think are driving behavior in this organization? What assumptions about people? So who gets hired? Who gets promoted? Uh, what do you pay attention to in the culture? These kinds of questions and in an environment where people are given the space to think aloud. And we use Nancy Klein's time to think methodology where often we'll start with some five minutes of silence, which is itself quite antithetical. But it's brilliant because you just get people to stop with a good, simple question and then three minutes uninterrupted we go around the table with a good simple question which is relevant to where they are as a business and often I've been really surprised that people afterwards have said you know what that's a conversation we've never had and you think well okay so these are very senior people running very large companies and they've not really ever talked to each other about what they personally personally deeply really want and I find that very striking really and of course, once you've had that conversation, then then things change because they can't forget what they've heard from their colleagues. Then you're in the business of actually having a discussion, because for me, the core to this is a shared belief among the leadership team that this is for real and is going to help make a better business. And it's all about the better business. The better society follows. But it's about the unrealized potential of people in the business. What that's a lovely phrase I got from somebody uh, the Cambridge Institute of Sustainability, who they ask companies, if all your products could speak, which one would you try and shut up? <laughs> so what are we really selling and to whom? You know, what's really going on in our customer relationships? And, and also the time for that shared belief to arise, because I, I think that's the other thing. Everybody wants to rush into this. And I realize, again, that's a wisdom of this two year thing, because we just encourage people to sit with these questions for a while and to let them, you know, marinate. Uh, in terms of the road approach as a leadership team, and then see what comes up. Mm -hmm. Just kind of coming back to your strategy and how it developed, it sounds to me like it, as we sort of touched on, 
bit iterative exploring you know kind of test and learn yeah how long would you say that all has taken and who was involved because it sounds like you were reaching out very strongly to external advisors stakeholders i don't mean advisors in the sense of consultants but just people who cared and could give you a perspective how did all that work well one of the things we did at an early stage was to having done the thinking with a pretty small group we wanted to kind of share it Mm -hmm. Uh, and what we did was we organized a series of two-day in what we called immersion workshops which we did in oxford and cambridge colleges in 2015 2016 2017 maybe when we stopped them, i think and we we did about seven or eight of these things with about 12 to 15 people at a time and it was a mix of you know reasonably senior people in corporates and coaches and consultants who kind of liked our thinking we stopped doing them because we ended up thinking we were working more with coaches and consultants on these than with the corporates they loved the depth of the thinking the, that was a good side the, the flip side was people felt well yeah but what do i do I mean, you give me this wonderful thinking but what do i do now what do i do on monday and how do I actually put this all into practice? We didn't really have answers to that, not good ones. So they were both inspiring and a bit disabling. But what we created was a community with by accident, actually, really. We didn't anticipate this. But when I look back on it, I think what we created was a community of individuals, about 80, 90, who loved Blueprint, who really were passionate about what we were trying to achieve, really wanted to help because we were a charity. They kind of lent in and, and then they became a kind of a core group of supporters, critics, challengers, helpers. So we've got very good trustees. And I set up a, a what I call a group of senior advisors to start with, deliberately to get in high level, critical friendship to help support and develop what we were doing. That was actually quite helpful. In that process, is anything you're particularly proud of in the way you went about it? Well, I think the thing I am proud of is that I, I think we've managed to stay true to our own core orientation as a charity because you also got to try and walk the talk right it's really rather important that you kind of try and live what you're inviting and encouraging other people to live by Mm -hmm. and i think we were kind of reasonable at that i wouldn't say we were perfect at all i'm conscious of the fact that maybe there are people who maybe feel that their help wasn't really appreciated or their offers of help you know fell on deaf ears and they could have contributed more or we could have been more collaborative at an early stage and that may well be right I think there was a certain amount of um, frustration that we weren't bigger, that we weren't moving faster. There were various voices encouraging us to try and have a bigger impact more quickly. And I think if I'm proud of anything, it would be the fact that we resisted those. Because I think now I'm clear that what we've achieved is very substantially as a result of being seen to be working in a non-commercial way that genuinely about helping businesses to be better businesses. And there's no other agenda. I think we have, by and large, stayed true to that original inspiration. And I think I am proud of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything that was much more difficult than you thought it was going to be or where you sort of feel the outcome could have been better? Anything, you know, that you might, looking back on it, feel like, I wish we had done that differently? Mm, gosh, there's quite a lot, really. I think that we could have done better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think maybe we could have been more braver at an earlier stage i could have pushed out a bit more you know i'm arguing against myself now i think there may well be things that were available had we been more confident and personally had i been more confident if i'd had a more recent involvement at a more senior level in the corporate world it may be that the conversations which i'm quite at ease having now with chairs and chief executives 
I would have maybe been better at three or four years ago. Also, we've got these two documents, a set of principles and a framework. And the principles are the kind of what's on the front of the jigsaw box, really. You know, you have these five principles, purpose, and the four quadrants around it. Customers and suppliers, being a responsible, responsive employer, good citizen, and guardian of future generations. I think we, at an earlier stage, kind of, if you like, sold those as the the core solution, when in the end, that's the front door through which you go. And then you think, oh, actually, there's a whole deeper conversation here, which is all about mindset. So the principles take you to the framework um, in the end. And the framework's all about mindset and behavior. And I don't think we emphasize that enough at an early stage. I think we we allowed ourselves to be a bit more superficial in our approach. Mm -hmm. Would you have any tips or suggestions for other leaders who are wrestling with, particularly smaller organizations that are trying to have a big impact in terms of how they're shaping the world, if I could put it that way? I think two things. I think one, what really helped us was to be super clear about who you were really trying to influence. So that we picked on big companies. You can argue whether that's the right or the wrong target. Lots and lots of people are interested in this agenda. And unless you're very careful, you can fritter away time and energy in areas that aren't going to directly help you achieve the core impact that you want. So I think being very clear about who you're trying to influence, what action would result from being successful around that is one thing. And I think running a charity that's doing something useful and people like what you're doing is that they all want to get involved. But of course, they all want to get involved on their terms. They've all got very clear views about what they think you should be doing. A coach I had, uh, and she had this lovely analogy, which is super helpful, really. She said, Charles, you need to distinguish between who's in the stands and who's on the pitch and, and work, work with the team. You know, you know, yeah, listen to the stands, but the stands are the stands. You don't want to be paying too much attention to the stands at the expense of what your strategy should be. And particularly if it's at the expense of keeping the team and your team will be your core team, plus people who are actually working with you. So th those two things for me have been very helpful. Mm -hmm. What would you say the impact has been on you personally? You know, how are you different or what have you learned? Oh, God, I'm learning loads. Um, well, when we started it, I mean, I, you know, I had a reasonably secure job and my wife was actually very cross with me for going and doing this because she said it may completely fail. And, you know, you go and run this full time age 57. Why on earth would you do that? I was really keen to do it because I felt my peculiar background and experience was relevant and I could bring something to it. I was really attracted by the challenge just to see whether I could do it, really. You know, and was it possible to do this? I've learned there are some fantastic people in businesses who are really keen to do this. And of course, you know, it's all people, isn't it? I mean, in the end, what I've learned is to try and look through the difference of legal structure to the commonality of human relationships, which are the heart of all these organizations uh, and how fundamentally important those are. And the desire, you know, for lots and lots of reasons now for organizations to see themselves as social organizations. and to orientate their activities in a way that genuinely does serve people. I've also learned that there are real limitations to the sort of traditional ways of trying to do things in business around this agenda. So the kind of command and control, hero leadership, stuff from the top, you know, it may deliver some things in the short term, but the culture change that's needed here is all about empowering everybody. I was just reading about Mary Parker Follett the other day. Uh, there's a big article in Time magazine, you know. So this has all been said 100 years ago, you know, but I love her construct of this is about power with, not power over. And I've also learned, I think, increasingly learned the importance of 
being at home with paradox, uncertainty, you know, living with the tension inevitably that arises where you just don't know and you make your best guess and you try and consult well and you think hard, but you don't know. Hmm. What what haven't I asked you that you wish I had? Um, for me, part of the division in life is the fact that we have not connected the deep desire for meaning and spirituality with our daily lives at work. When we set Blueprint up, we described it as faith enabled, not faith led. Anybody of any faith or none can be part of it. But it does draw quite a lot on wisdom traditions. That's to say virtue ethics, which goes back to Aristotle. It draws quite a lot on Catholic social thought, the common good, human dignity and these constructs. Part of all of this is can business environments be places where people can genuinely pursue, a, if you like, a vocation to be a better person without being moralistic about that and find a deeper sense of fulfillment and meaning through their work? You know, I mean, work is a big part of all our lives. I think this applies right across society, whatever jobs anybody does. It ought to be a place that actually adds to life rather than detracts from life. And people feel a sense of fulfillment through that. And that also needs to connect to a deeper sense of meaning, I think, and you know, which has a spiritual quality as well. So for me, that's another agenda. I mean, that would be another conversation, but I'm interested in that. Hmm. Hmm. There's a lot, Charles, a lot in everything you've said that really resonates with me, and particularly that last bit about the importance of meaning in human life and the great shame when so much of life called work just doesn't have a space for that. Let me thank you for joining us. Thank you for the honesty about some of the ups and downs of the journey you've been on. And and what I hear is still just a huge enthusiasm for and a sense of the potential from what you're doing. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Paul, for having me. It's a pleasure to chat. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to Belden at Mancus. Com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.